HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Fields Podcast with Melissa Metric and Wife Marshall. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working to grow the field of urban agriculture for money, for fun, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or for entirely other reasons. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in and around New York City and beyond, one technology used to grow food, or one critical element inside of food. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Hey there, I'm Wife Marshall, and I'm here with Melissa Metric and Kevin Espiritu of Epic Gardening, and his work definitely just seems totally epic, so we're going to have an epic conversation today about growing at home. Hopefully, we'll cover some practical and wide-ranging thoughts. Kevin, just thank you so much for being with us, and we're, yeah, we're just excited to talk more about growing at home with someone who does this for a living at a really high level. So thanks sure. again. And uh, yeah, let's, why don't we do some short, uh, some short intros? Because yeah, we haven't actually met you before. So this is a great uh, chance to just to get to know each other. Um, but yeah, Kevin, do you want to give us a sort of lowdown? What's what's the summary of, of Epic Gardening and your work? Yeah, sure. So I think the best summary is basically me learning in public about growing plants, because I didn't grow up as a, a gardener or a farmer. I'm, I've never been a farmer even today. But yeah, it's just it's just me learning in public and kind of synthesizing all this information and translating it into media formats that I think are more palatable today than, you know, reading um, an extension PDF or something like that. The goal is is really to teach as many people as possible how to grow their own food, even if it's just, you know, a couple herbs here and there. If you're in an apartment, they're, you know, you're gated by your space. So if you're in an apartment, it's that. And if, if you're in a much larger space and you want it to go full bore, then then it's that. So it's it's more the the philosophy of being more self-sufficient, growing your own food rather than like, did you supply a hundred percent of your food? Yeah. And I feel like the, the philosophy of just learning those skills is, yeah, is a little different than maybe like traditional farm lifestyles or someone who grew up um, in a rural area and was told like, Hey, you should you know, manage this land, which are both really admirable. Um, but yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that and how to get into it from the urban perspective. Just to 
to say like we're in New York. Um, I'm in Queens. Melissa's in Brooklyn, and you're in California. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm down in San Diego. How are you doing given the whole COVID pandemic crisis? Are you and your business okay? Or yeah, I mean, I think anyone in gardening certainly seems to have experienced like a where you get you get a lift because we're in season right now, so you get your seasonal lift. But then there's a multiplier factor on top of that. It's like three to five x almost. I feel like, and so it's been really crazy. I mean, just just having a YouTube channel or a podcast or whatever, even just the website numbers are just the highest I've ever seen, which is crazy. It's good. I wish it didn't come at the expense of the reason why it's good. I mean, it's, I'm personally doing fine. I know a lot of people aren't doing fine, but I'm doing pretty well. So thankful for that. With people that are interested, do you see if people are interested in, in like more container growing, urban growing, soil growing, hydroponics, aquaponics, like do or is it kind of a mix? Yeah, I thought it would be everything goes up, which I think everything did go up, but the things that went way up would be anything that's happening in people's lives that are living in small spaces. And so a lot of like the restaurant type of workers who are out of work, like they're in apartments or small homes or condos, things like that, that has really exploded. So like apartment gardening, balcony gardening, which by necessity is to some degree a container. And then also just like homeowners who are all stuck at home with their kids and they're trying to like either homeschool or, you know, do something creative. It's like baking, cooking, gardening, and like crafts, you know? And so gardening seems to be the winner in all those. And so you're seeing a lot of people wanting to start their first raised bed too. Yeah. Are you like with those small spaces via indoor or outdoor, do you find like with indoor people are more interested in like hydroponics or aquaponics mm-hmm. or not necessarily? To some degree, I would say it's, it's definitely a little more popular than it was before. But I think the more popular thing right now is like everyone's growing herbs for the first time. They're growing like a little balcony railing planter with like lettuce or kale or something like that. And getting a lot of joy and interest out of that rather than jumping from zero. Because a lot of these people are never gardened, you know. So then going zero to hydroponics, that's how I started it. But, you know, I don't think I'm like the use case of, of most people starting out. So how did you start? Can you give us your kind of origin story in terms of like your transition? Yeah. You're not just gardening, but like full time, like epic gardening. Yeah, yeah. So I had come out of college with a business economics accounting degree mostly because it's the most generic thing you could get. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I was like, well, I'll get that. It's a safe choice. But during college, I had played online poker and I really got into it. So I got into it to the point where it had paid for school. Uh, And so I didn't have to work for a little bit. I mean, I obviously at some point I had to work again, but like I had a lot of savings after college, which was great. But at the same time, it totally like disillusioned me from the traditional path of getting really any job at all. Because I was coming out of school, like, why would I be an accountant? And that's a pretty grueling early career because you're putting in 80 to 100 hour weeks and getting paid $50,000. You know, like that's just hourly wise, not amazing for that type of work. Um, and so I was like, well, I don't want to do that. But I didn't know what I actually did want to do. And so when I quit poker, I quit poker like six months after college and I didn't know what to do. And so I just started playing video games. Like that's the closest analog to poker. You know, I was like, I guess I'll do this. I don't have to do anything. And that was not very fulfilling, obviously. And so I was like, I need to do something to get out of the house. And my brother and I that summer just started a garden. So we just did like the same thing I'm now teaching other people to do. Just like a little balcony or patio garden where I did. I think I went out of the gate. He did basil and containers, which is like recommended. I think that's the good thing to do. And I did um, hydroponic cucumbers in a deep water culture system. 
uh, <laughs> just right out of the gate. Yeah. And it didn't turn out well. Like I got the cucumbers. It didn't turn out that good. They weren't tasty, but like my brain was hooked on it. Um, and at the time I was also learning to build websites. And so I built, uh, what was then called exponics because I thought all I would do was hydroponics as a, just like, you know, just like a hobby blog to kind of summarize what I was doing. And then eventually over the years, I turned it into Epic Gardening. So I was like, I want to talk about more than just hydroponics. Almost four years ago, I think now, I quit my job, which was in a, I was in a publishing startup. I quit that job to go full time on this. And so that's the abridged version of the story. It's kind of a weird road. Really interesting though, the mix of being completely online with, with doing online poker and video games and stuff like that. And then you went to this more, I don't know if I'd call it like analog, but gardening this complete kind of opposite, but then you kind of meld the two, which actually seems really relevant today because everybody's online, but then also everybody wants to get into gardening and doing these other kind of like fruitful things. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're all more or less addicted to the internet, you know, to varying degrees. And then we rebound back to nature to like detoxify ourselves from that. I don't know if that's like the most apt terminology you know but to some degree that's true and and yeah i mean that's how i used it and it seems like especially now when everyone's stuck at home especially like a bunch of like extroverted people stuck at home you know they gotta do something you gotta get out there and do something and so yeah i mean i think it's a cool blending of the two and you know i don't know you look at nature and, and technology and there's really a lot of similarities in a lot of the like philosophies of growth and all of that yeah like i haven't read about it that much but like the internet of things like my ceiling connection and other stuff. That's interesting when you say the rebound or, or kind of going into nature also as like therapeutic thing or a psychological release or something. Yeah. It's almost like a truism to me because like up until however many thousand years ago, that's just how we all were. And we haven't evolved past that in this short period of time. And so like, it's weird when you hear about nature being used as therapy, you know, like all these papers coming out and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't know if we need a paper for that because that's just how our biology existed. So it seems like we're actually not like we're anti-treating ourselves by living in the society we are now, you know, and then just going back to how we always were, obviously would work. I don't know. This is my take. But also just the idea of like how being outside can also bring us back to this like fear um, in general of like kind of predator prairie thing where it's like, if we go outside, COVID could get us. We're all kind of running around and constantly being wary of like hawks getting them and things like that. So it's like being outside in a sense can be like very therapeutic, but we also go back to this fear of being outside and having something attack us. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think what's what you're seeing now is anyone who has the space, their outside that's safe is their backyard or the patio or whatever. And so that's like their one area where they're like, oh, I can just be here and nothing's going to get me. You know what I mean? And so I think that's part. There's so many like headwinds all compounding upon themselves. I think that's why gardening is like really blowing up right now. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that dovetails with like my my research is focused on indoor growing and hydroponics. And I think a lot of that is a, is to some degree, like I love your phrase of, yeah, like a green rebound. Um, but it is also about like control and still having things, objects, systems that look kind of ethical and controllable and safe. And they're not actually part of that wilderness where, yeah, the hawk is going to get you, you know, where you're competing. Right. <laughs> but instead that, you know, you're ordering parts on Amazon or going to the local hydro store. Um, and so there's an interesting kind of 
um, having it both ways with, with some aspects of growing that I, I think pe- people have different, you know, um, emotions about and they explore different pieces That's of it. I know a lot of people, yeah, they explore hydroponics and soil and they, they like doing that. But I guess, you know, for, for me, like one question that just comes up is like, when did this interest, um, you know, how did that move into being a job full time? I mean, you know, well, that sounds yeah. like a pretty big decision uh, to quit your full time job and, and sort of teach gardening. That's a good question. I mean, I think ever since I turned, I mean, sometimes I think things are in you or they're not to some degree. And I don't know how much like genetics plays a part in it. But like, even as a kid, like I had the lemonade stand, right. And I was selling candy in sixth grade and I was burning CDs off Napster. And so to the extent that that was in me from birth, then that was in me. And I don't know how much that plays, but so there's that element at play. And then the other element at play was uh, after, so poker kind of changed my mind about a lot of things. It like broke models of like what I thought I had to do with my life. Um, because if you see something coming in, AKA money that you didn't have to do the thing you thought you had to do to get, then you, you start to question a lot more things. Right. And so that happened. And then, you know, before the the job in publishing, I had tried and failed various things. Like we, I had raised money for a startup app thing that that had failed. I had done marketing sort of things to varying levels. Like I could pay my bills, you know? Uh, and so I went to the marketing or the publishing company I was on the founding team. So I was a second employee there and it just blew up. But the reason I joined was to say, Hey, I need to understand why I can't hit um, the levels that I want to hit on the things I'm doing. Right. And this thing looks like a rocket ship. So I'm going to work there and figure out how companies actually grow so that I can then go be free once again and figure out how to do it. And so when I quit, it was at about at that point where I was like, okay, we've gone well past the place where I think my business will go if I was to quit. So I should probably quit and, and start applying this stuff, you know? And so what I was going to do was speaking of urban farming is I was going to do the Curtis Stone style model where you're farming people's front yards and using that as a networked uh, urban farm. But every gardening existed. And so I was like, well, it's generating a little bit. I'll see if I can just make it pay my bills to the point where then I can try any business I want and I'm not just drawing down all my savings. And so that happened in a few months. And then I was like, I think I might be better at what I'm doing now than what I might test, like the, the farming model or the microgreens model. I had grown and sold microgreens in the past. It's like, I think I might be better at this looking at like my internet savvy plus the gardening stuff. And so then it became not so much a hard choice as more just like the obvious choice. What is, what is epic about epic gardening? This is kind of a uh, yeah kind of a fun question, but you know I don't know to the degree that like you know these names do reflect something. Yeah, well, I mean the the reason I named it that is because first of all, I was rebranding it from the Exponics name, which was really bad. Uh, so anything would have been better than that. And then epic was me looking at the whole like world of garden blogger type of people. And it was like, and I'm, I'm not trashing these types of names. It just wasn't for me. It was like, you know, green pastures dot blogspot.com, whatever, like some, or like some pun of gardening. And I was like, I think I would just want gardening in the name. And I just want an adjective. that's more me. Like it's more, I just wanted to modernize it a bit and not have it be so hippy dippy or whatever. Um, and so I just went with Epic. I don't, I really don't know why, but now I don't even use that word that much, like in my normal language, but you know, obviously now I do. So yeah, that was, I mean, that was the logic behind it. It was just like something that would kind of pattern interrupt the the classic gardening terminology, you know? That totally makes sense because I feel like a lot of these words are very bucolic or again, like catering towards a certain population or something like that. 
my background, I was also a gardener for a restaurant called Roberta's and they would totally use that word epic. So, so it does change who's interested. Yeah. I mean, the goal to me was not to speak to people who are already growing. You know what I mean? Um, it was to get new people to grow or people on that, that fence, you know, and grow them into it rather than just say like, Hey, we're all gardeners here. Let's just all talk about gardening. Cause I wasn't. And so like all the terminology that I now know, I did not know at the start, you know, like hardiness zones and topping off and all this stuff. Um, and so I was like, well, I have to explain everything in plain English instead of as someone who's been doing it for 40 years, you know, where did you go about educating yourself? Um, so the, the crazy part about it is I worked under, um, Mel Bartholomew who wrote square foot gardening just randomly, like I was doing uh, web design then and his foundation was in San Diego and he needed a website for his own personal stuff. And so I built him a website and we ended up working together for like 18 months. And so I got a lot from him, even though he also didn't grow up as a gardener. But so that kind of conditioned me even further that way. But then everything else is just reading books, testing stuff, talking to people, just like practical knowledge instead of, instead of um, you know, a horticulture degree or something like that. It just wasn't the path I ended up taking. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because I teach a class called Introduction to Urban Agriculture at NYU. And the first thing that I have them do is is look up uh, square foot gardening. That's what we do as a start. The best thing about that book is he did he did what I've, I guess I've always strived to do, but he did it the best because his book, there's that. And then there's every other gardening book that's ever been written. It's sold so much more. It's insane. But yeah, I mean, he, he said, you don't, if you take this book and you, and you apply it, you don't actually have to know anything about plants to succeed. And that's why it did so well, you know, so it's really, really smart approach. Yeah, because uh, the way I, I speak to my students about it, it's like a lot of people don't necessarily know spacing wise, like two to three inches, you know, what that means when you're outside, you don't have a ruler on you. Like a lot of people don't know what that is via like from your thumb to your pointer finger or whatever. It is a really easy way just to like draw out this square and figure out is your plant small size, medium size, or large size, and you have a certain number of plants that will fit in that square foot, depending on, you know, the size of the plants. It just takes all the guesswork away, which is the, because I mean, man, with, with gardening, I think you guys probably both have found that like the questions people have that, that paralyze them before they start, it's like a hundred questions long, you know? And it's like, well, if we couldn't garden as a species, we would probably just be dead. So. I don't think it's that complex. And it's also interesting how so many people don't have the access to it from, especially if you're in an urban area, you might not have, you know, like a mentor or somebody who could teach you. That could be the overall issue in general. It's like, I grew up in an urban area. My grandfather was a gardener, but I don't remember anything. So it's just this interesting thing culturally, how in certain areas, like what you're talking about with those like bucolic names and things like that. People who grew up around gardens, people start shifting to more urban areas. They might not have that knowledge. Plus, I think if you think about it, right, we're in a, you have our parents' generation and then us, and those could be two generations that really didn't have to grow anything to live, you know? And so that's long enough for the knowledge to be forgotten. But I think like maybe our parents have more of it than we do because their parents maybe did have to do that, right? So there's a level of just losing it over time that hopefully we're now regaining it, you know, and maybe we'll know a lot about it and we can pass it on. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think of, that's that's very much in line with my research on, on intergrowing is that it's about creating a new culture 
where it is assumed you will grow some food and you'll have some kind of relationship with plants and maybe, you know, fungi and maybe animals. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more about managing production, but also, yeah, their, their care and their lives. Um, and, and it's not the same as traditional agrarian farming and it's not going back to some imagined small farm system that didn't really exist. That was actually these terrible large unit, you know, but also, you know, it isn't totally ignoring and assuming food magically just appears at the supermarket. And so I think it's really interesting to see the different pieces like work like like you do. Um, and, and yeah, lots of companies are trying to sort of solve that through through their lens of sort of entrepreneurial work. Um, and yeah, assuming that, okay, urban growers are starting from zero. How can I meet them? So I, I think it's really interesting you both actually start with Mel Bartholomew. That's like a cool, yeah. um, you know, overlap that I did not know. It's interesting because a lot of people, you, you either like square foot gardening or a lot of people seem to really hate it. And I... Personally, it doesn't make sense to me for someone to hate it because I don't know. I mean, the numbers don't lie. It's gotten more people to start gardening than most other things probably combined. And so I like, if you're a gardener, it makes it, it doesn't make sense to me to hate that. But yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. I, I don't think we're going backwards uh, in the future. I think in, in my future, at least, um, I kind of see us going into like a high tech natural style where you're taking the best of call it ancient life, whatever primal life and then the best of what technology can do. But then you're saying the things that tech can do that maybe are, are harmful to some degree, we say no to. Um, and so we ignore those ones and we just use it to like intelligently automate certain things that need automation, but we don't like consume. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like we're just kind of playing this barbell strategy of ancient and modern life. That's a great way to think about it instead of going completely tech and kind of going against, you know, these like cultural techniques and things like that, but actually melting the two and seeing the benefits of both. That in itself seems like evolution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I used to be very much like tech will solve everything and we'll be living in this like techno future. And I'm like, I actually don't think that's true now. It will solve the best things it can solve. And then everything else will be solved by just like, at some point, like there's no more to progress. I kind of have that type of approach and i don't know if that i don't know if that's right or wrong you know i'm like why go to mars when we can just live a baller life here i don't know yeah well i think i was writing down and sort of underlining because i think it's interesting to hear like high-tech natural i mean this is again i think um you're, you're you're giving good voice to one version of it but i think a lot of people are exploring these ideas um for just the reasons you said and you know the, the whole idea of progress like in the philosophy of science that's like a big debate over like is there progress like progress in terms of what um, that's mm -hmm. not how evolution, you know, in a Darwinian sense works. You're not progressing toward Godhead, you know, like we're not yeah. more complex than the, the slime in the RNA world three and a half billion years ago. It also had the same properties. It, it had a variety. It, it self-perpetuated. Um, so in, in some ways it's like, and it could withstand cosmic bombardment and like asteroids and volcanoes and still, and right. still exists there at the bottom of hydrothermal vents, still chilling, living their best life. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, like human complexity and progress is like, is an interesting, um, I think, red herring. And I think to, to your point about Mars, because I find this all the time with all the Mars stuff drives me nuts. It's like, practically, isn't practically the best solution to make our life on Earth better first? And like, if Mars is like an icing on a cake, great. Yeah. If not, really, who cares? Like, I care a lot more about New York and California, the middle of the country, like the South. I care about than any Mars. location on Earth more than any location on Mars. You know, it's like... Yeah. I get it as a existential hedge to the species. That would make sense. Um, you would want that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we haven't scratched the surface of like how good we could live 
on the planet that we evolved on and what seems to be the only planet nearby that can life can naturally exist, you know? Yeah, totally. So I just, I, I love, I love some of that language. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Getting back to like your work with Epic Gardening, um, I guess I'm just curious, like, how do you see yourself adding to this, this new culture, um, this new strategy of using some of the technology when it makes sense, but also getting people more back in touch with growing? Yeah. Like, what's your sort of special sauce? I mean, and I say this because obviously you've been really successful. Um, you reached a lot of people. So what do you think it is that you're adding that's a little different from um, some of these other guides? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I always try to think about that. Um, and I'm not quite sure I know, like, the best answer for it. I guess it would be like a combination of explaining things in ways that makes it, I mean, really, I'm just explaining things in ways that make sense to me. And it so happens that that seems to make sense to other people. So there's a couple things to it. And I think a lot of people get confused because they're like, oh, well, like, how is this person doing it? Because they're not, and this is in any domain, like, how is this person doing it? They're not like the best in the world at this. It's like, well, you actually need to be the best in the world at like four to five skill sets in the perfect Venn diagram. And that's how you win most games. Uh, and so I think that's what I'm doing. I think I'm not the best gardener, certainly, because I can't be because I haven't been gardening nearly as long as most people, you know, at least most people educating on it. But I'm not probably the best marketer or the best communicator, but I might be one of the strongest of three plus whatever other skills matter. And I think if you add that into like just the compounding forces of platforms and the internet and, and all these things, then everything reinforces itself. And there you go. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know if there's a better answer than that, <laughs> unfortunately. Like the jack of all trades wins. Yeah. Like a jack of all trades that doesn't stop giving up on a specific thing. That's the best way I can put it. I mean, there's, there's so much to be said about uh, platforms and, and the compounding of platforms and, being early on platforms is insanely more valuable than being like one day later than that. Um, like even just take like TikTok. I was on TikTok in August, which is not that early, but it's way earlier than the mainstream. 
you know, because now now I see like moms getting on TikTok, which they said they would never do, which is the same pattern that repeats itself on every platform that ever exists. And so as long as you know that, you know that taking a bet on something is is much higher value than not. So I did. And then, you know, it's you reap the benefits of a platform wanting to give their best creators free exposure, because if you think about their incentives, they're trying to grow. And so they want to get people over because then I'm going to say, Oh my gosh, TikTok is like just promoting you for free. It's crazy. And then ever more people come. And so like when you do stuff like that, you can win in theory without even being anywhere close to the best because you were first. Yeah. And also going on TikTok, like what do you have to lose? There's nothing to lose except for some time. But a lot of people say like, Oh, what if it doesn't blow up? And it's like, well, it doesn't matter because you still practice the skill of delivering information. And so whatever platform does win, you still are better than you were before. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't blow up. That's how I look at it, at least. It's also interesting how your background, like your history, like in playing poker kind of is playing a role. Yeah. I mean, it really changed the way I thought about everything because poker is is a weird microcosm for life because it is a game of, it's a game of true skill, but there's quite a bit of luck involved. You know, so you can win long term, unlike most games you'll play at any casino. Like that's one of the few that you can actually win at long term because the house is taking a rake from the pot, but you're playing against players. Right. And so if someone's worse, you will have an edge long term. And that is how that is how life works, too. If you're trying to get anywhere, things can come and it's a windfall or a downfall. Right. But as long as you're executing with like some edge over whatever else is out there you will win long-term unless something takes you out, you know? So it does, it does change how I, I thought about everything really. I mean, yeah, it, it all makes me think about what you're saying about platforms. And, you know, I have to ask about like being on the oldest, you know, successful, really mega successful communication platform, the book. Uh, you, you did write a book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that as well? Cause that seems like slightly different than getting on TikTok, but it's, it's like you're doing yeah. both, which is, is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So the book, I think whenever, when I started working with Mel, I was like, well, I want to have a book sometime, you know? And so the goal of that was to say, okay, well, some people just read and that's it. So if my goal is to reach as many people as I can about this, then I have to write the book, even though, I mean, I put a video out two months ago that is total human consumption of that video is, well, my book will never scratch a percentage of that. Right. That's just how it is. Um, but you still, you still do these things because number one, in the, like the world of strategy, that's just, it's, it's still, cause I came from publishing, right? Like writing a book gives you an unfair edge on people just because of the way that books are held in society. So there's that, but also just like having something tangible that someone could take out into the garden and like really connect with, you know, it's just a, it's just a different thing. And so the goal there was to teach someone who didn't know how to grow anything how to grow some stuff specifically in like small urban spaces. But I kind of wrote it from the perspective of like, this will give you the brain of a gardener rather than uh, like how to grow a tomato, you know? Hmm. So more like the philosophy behind gardening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very much a practical guide, but, yeah. the, but in the book, there's nothing like here's how to prune a tomato. It's more like, here's how a plant generally overview uses light or like, here's how a soil works, you know? So it's kind of teaching them like the, it's like the teach a person how to fish thing. Interesting. The idea of like having something ephemeral that the idea of it lasting longer, all these platforms are changing so quickly, how people access things, like how long are they going to have access to it? But if you have this physical object, such as a book, like that will sit on your bookshelf. Yeah, it's true. I mean, those are things that, I mean, books will never not be a thing. You know, 
Whereas every platform could at any moment in time, I guess, not be a thing, you know, probably not some of them, but, but certainly like maybe a TikTok might not be, you know, who knows. Can you please tell us the title of your book? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's called <laughs> Field Guide to Urban Gardening. And then the subtitle is How to Grow Plants No Matter Where You Live or How to Grow Food No Matter Where You Live. I actually don't remember, <laughs> but yeah, that's the, that's the idea behind it. And when did you write it? That came out in May. It came out basically a year ago, I guess. Oh, almost to the day, actually. I look at the calendar. Yeah, crazy. Oh, well, congrats. Congrats on Thanks. the first anniversary. Hope, you know, sales have been good. Maybe because been, of COVID. I mean, it's, you know, sad reason, but hey, you know, it's a... Uh... Sad reason, but yeah, it's, I don't think... Um, so with books, the publishers typically order less the next year because it's now it's a backlist book. But this one went up and obviously COVID had something to do with that. And then the platforms all grew and stuff. And so now we, I can't, I have like a ton of pre-orders that I have to get to, but I just can't get the books yet. <laughs> they just need to be printed. So yeah, not a bad problem to have. Yeah, definitely. I, I look forward to reading it. I did not know, um, I didn't know you had a book until I did a little more digging. And so now it's on, on my list of, of many, you know, guides where I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I really need to up my own skills and just, you know, yeah, look at, look at how different people are messaging. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed the hydro section was probably a little basic for you, but, uh, hopefully, hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> well, I'm interested in education and communication, um, and how people explain these things. I think that's really uh, a lot of, of what I'm interested in is like, how are you explaining it successfully and, and how can we learn from that? Let's, let's say at, at a university level or, um, you know, in terms of the industry, um, you know, I work with, with industry members on training and that's always a question. How do you get more people engaged and how do you actually get them skilled? Um, and so you have to be good right, at right. explaining the basics and all the way up, you know, wh whatever the technical side is, they have to understand what you're saying. And I would definitely check it out too for my students, right? Because it's like an introductory book. Also just like the, the, like why, why it's just what you were saying, like to piggyback on that, like, um, yeah, understanding the basics is really, really important. And a lot of people think that they understand the basics, like watering my plant, not, you know, why does it look wilted? Is it too much water, too little water? Like, I feel like watering is one of the, like, the main issues that a lot of people have. They don't know how to look at their plants and they don't know how to understand the language of what their plants are trying to tell them. That's really true. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in the beginning of the book, so it's like split into three parts. And the first is like green thumb basics. Then it's a bunch of methods. Then it's problems. But the basics part, it's like the end of it says really the ultimate skill is just observing and then just using your brain. But you do have to know what the things you're observing mean. Right. And so there's both, but I don't know. I mean, I think once you realize how plants use water, light, air, soil, all these things, then you look at it and you're like, okay, it's, it's definitely not this. It's definitely not this. It could be this or this. Cause it's, it is like a diagnosis type of uh thing. Some, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not right. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a totally good point. Oh, that's such a good comparison. I don't know why I never heard it said that way, but it's a differential diagnosis. It's the same thing you teach in med school, observation based science. Before you do empirical tests, you start with observation and you try to differentiate what you're observing um, so that you can arrive at like, okay, what thing am I going to test? Yeah, I mean, I think well, I used to, I, so I prided myself for a long, long time on answering everyone's questions on every platform possible, which has, I only recently gave up on that. And it was like maybe a month or two ago. And I still feel kind of bad about it because, you know, these are the people that make me be able to do what I do. But at some point, one human can't do it. But yeah, I mean, I probably gave a lot of people unsatisfying answers because, you know, they send me a picture of like a yellow leaf. And I'm like, okay, well, you can't just send me that. You have to also tell me everything else that, that is going on, right? And, 
and then you can narrow it down to this or that. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think about it kind of like uh, House would diagnose someone on his show or whatever, you know? Students, a lot of times I'm like, okay, we're going to all be plant doctors. And then I have like one student show us a problem. And then I have all the other students kind of chime in and just be like, guys, what do you think this is? And I just kind of step back. So it shows how much they know and how they could help their fellow colleagues, students, things like that. It's cool. That's a cool, that'd be a fun classroom to be in. <laughs> I definitely want to get your thoughts. Like, I feel like as a, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the future um, and both where do people um, in the industry think uh, urban growing is going and also where they think it, it ought to grow. Um, so I'd love to hear, like, what are your thoughts on the future of ag and cities? And that could be, you know, do you have thoughts on, on more industrial scale um, stuff or, or just home growers or do the two link up? You know, should there be networks of home growers? Um, right. What have yeah. you seen that's like hype? What's reality in the news? And I know, again, a lot of it is has to do with, with recent stuff, but, uh, but, you know, long term, like, what is your vision? What would you like to see? Yeah, that's a really good question because I don't think really anyone knows the true answer. We all have our biases, right? So like if you look at the guys from, let's say, like a Square Roots Grow, they obviously think that uh, containers are going to do all of it, right? Um, or I have some friends who work at, they're the founders of freight farms. Uh, and so they obviously think that containers, again, are the way to go, but their model's different. And then you have people who are doing like the Curtis Stone front yard garden model, and they say, actually, what we need to have is a, a new class of worker that is the local farmer, but the, the local farm just looks different. I'm preferable to, I, I don't think there's like one answer. So I think what would be cool is I think for hydroponic and aeroponic and aquaponic applications, if you grow your high value nutrient dense and or highly expensive crops like that, I think that's intelligent and that's a better use of space than doing that in soil. You can even get to cut flowers and stuff like that. But I think there's certain things that you just have to grow in soil, in my opinion, to prevent, like any root crop is just more intelligently grown in soil, right? And so if you're going to actually make a dent in the industrial food system, then you do have to provide calories too, I think, which means that you probably have to have some sort of class of person that is the farmer in the same way that you have someone who does your nails in the same way that you have someone who does your hair. Um, you, you, I would like to see that class of person rise up and I don't know the manner in which they would make that possible, but that's, I think what would be cool. And so it'd be a combination of all, but I think that would be the missing piece for me. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. I love that answer. I love the idea of a new class of worker. Yeah. And also just the concept of like, for example, these staple crops, like what you're talking about, like wheat and other things and thought about growing or maybe people have thought about it, but it's a little bit harder to grow. It's just the mass acreage that you need to grow these certain crops. Maybe beans would be a way to move forward. Beans could be good. Yeah. Yeah. Beans could be good. I, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence even of, I think some crops probably still do need to be commercially cultivated. Let's say the wheat. It's probably not efficient to have a lot of small farmers doing an acre of wheat each. Then you have a distribution and aggregation problem. And so that's what centralized farming solved. But I think if you add it to centralized farming, the sustainability of actually building the soil correctly, then maybe you solve that problem there. And then all the niche crops can get pushed locally. Like anything that's a has a freshness issue of transport, maybe you push those locally and you push everything else centrally. I actually don't know, but that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, or maybe especially with COVID and everybody, a lot of people, especially in suburbs, growing things, the idea of the hinterlands, so places right outside the city becoming more of a production zone. 
So like doing a lot of fresh stuff in urban areas, then the hinterlands kind of growing out and then going farther out. And that's where you do your grain and your larger acreage and stuff. Yeah. I've seen like city models where it's like, it's, it's a concentric circle model and it, it gets, it's, it's exactly like that. It's a really cool idea. That's tough because you have to retrofit. Who wrote a book? Someone wrote a book, a permaculture short book called like retrofitting the suburbs. And he was basically saying like the suburb model made sense and now it doesn't make sense. So you need to delete one home in a neighborhood and make that a local store. You need to like have a farming hub in there. And I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. If we could do it that way, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's that's very much this stuff is um, debated a lot in urban design, like the world of villages and like going back to village models, which to your point, yeah, is like, here's a store, here's like the town hall, um, here's a farm. Uh, and then there's some homes as opposed to a suburb, which is often really like shoddily designed homes with nothing else, um, certainly no farms. And and even just the idea of like using lawns as farms, like these are moves that I think a lot of, you know, landscape designers, urban planners are interested in, even probably, you know, some municipal officials I know, um, they may not be sure exactly how to like motivate homeowners to get engaged. So maybe that's yeah. where like, people like you come in to get the homeowners interested. Um, but I think there's a lot out there. I mean, the earlier models, and this is the stuff I teach, like the guy who originally had that concentric model design von Thunigan, you know, was like, this is the 19th century. And he was just saying like, what literally makes sense in terms of perishability to grow yeah. close to yeah. the city versus far. But you look at all these designs like Ebenezer Howard, right at the turn of the century, wrote Garden Cities of Tomorrow, has these beautiful illustrations about cities should be laid out. And he was really working in a more industrial, you know, thinking through it, like, how would this actually look in England? How would this actually look in the Northeast US? Um, yeah. And a lot of people over time have gone back to that book because it's just, it's really beautiful. But also he included all the social stuff too. It wasn't just primary economic, you know, where's the wheat versus where's the um, tree crops versus where's the fresh produce. It was also like, where's the school? Where's the hospital? Yeah. And we yeah. have that with the farm. Like, how does farming interact with healthcare? And it was like that, you know, looking at that book and seeing that it's over a hundred years old is mind blowing. Cause it's like, oh, these are some of the same things I feel like we need today. So it's great, yeah, it's great that you're, yeah, you're thinking in the same lines. I think um, we went too far down the divorcing of our necessities of life from the life that we live, you know? So like we can get anything we need without having to do anything, but maybe a knowledge worker job, right? Which is not bad because that's why we're here. That's, I mean, that's why we're talking on this right now. But at some point, like, I don't know, this ties to so much because like, why do we see the diseases of affluence in our society you know, why is there so much depression and all this stuff? And obviously there's like major depression. And then there's like everything else that you may say is like a little bit more environmentally driven. I think this is why we see that. Uh, and so if you go back to some degree, it's kind of like the high tech natural thing. Let's not, let's not be Luddites and disregard all the tech we've developed. Let's just not only do that. Let's just do the other stuff we know is good for us, you know? Yeah. Or in the sense of like, let's like, I love how science is actually coming back again in a way. Yeah, yeah. You have to abide by it. Yeah. What's going on? So it's like tech in the in the same sense. It's like let's still appreciate tech and all of the knowledge that we have and moving forward, just like within science. But let's also be the citizen scientists, where it's like we are the observer, right? We are naturalists where we're observing we're doing these preventative measures especially with like organic growing or, or all of these other things where it's like civilizations have been doing for thousands of years the thing about i think a lot of the thing about science is like 
oh, a genius thought of it and then the invention was made. But a lot of the times it's the reverse. It's like you're just trying a lot of stuff and you're just pulling the thread of what's responding correctly. And from there, you post-mortem come up with the theory. Um, at least that's what seems to be. I mean, that's how a lot like penicillin and all these sort of things, right? The guy didn't, the guy wasn't like, let's invent it, you know, you discover it. And so science sometimes seems like, I don't know, like there's, I can see why people can be anti-science in some ways. It depends on the way it's like framed, you know, but like what I would call true science or the, the way, the way you're talking about it is coming back. And I think it's great that it's coming back in the way that it is. Yeah. Or the connection of, of having cultures or societies trust science again and that and, and combining the two where it's like not just a subject that you take information from them, use that information and then don't acknowledge that civilization that gives you that information. Yeah. That's the thing that's funny is like when someone's like, ah, like this and that is not true. This and that. And they're like, they're, they're using everything surrounding them was developed using the principles that they're protesting. You know, it's like, okay, well, you can say whatever you want to say, but you're a living hypocrite, you know? Yeah. And I think in terms of the trust stuff that they are getting at, um, I think a lot of it is the trust and expertise, you know, scientific expertise was lost because, um, that scientific expertise that's sort of definitional. And we think of big, you know, high tech science, often we think of, um, unfortunately like, you know, white guys in a lab and they're inventing like, bombs or they're inventing medicines that are me too drugs that they're going to charge $10,000 a month, uh, to, to patients, uh, who have yeah, yeah. Orphan disease category. And, and that's not, you know, that's, that's like one application of some of these ways of reasoning that, that we tend to call science. Whereas you could also imagine, um, yeah, that, that there's a scientific observational mindset, like, like say to growing plants, um, mm-hmm. and as, a, as a home grower, there's, there's yeah the, the accidental discovery. There's all these other things that go into um, knowledge creation and dissemination. So I think it's a lot of, I think maybe the present moment is a contest. Um, and a lot of the people who are really dissatisfied with expertise, even if like, I don't agree with all their politics, like I understand why they're dissatisfied with, For wow, sure. yeah. they, they got screwed, you know? Um, so I feel like we can all agree that like, Hey, let's, let's try to figure out a better way to move forward. And, and I love your approach and, and what you're bringing to the table in terms of the, the home growing side. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Cause I think, the problem that science will have, and that's it's too broad a term, but whatever, I'm just going to use it anyways, is that as soon as you overreach on that, you you destroy your credibility. And there's really good examples of overreach, you know, where you're relying too much on predictive models in a world that's so chaotic that you can't predict. And not admitting that you can't predict and then saying something very strongly and it doesn't come out to be true just destroys the credibility of the institution itself. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is an, it is an interplay of like using it correctly. So you don't abuse its, its significance, yeah. you know? And, and it's always through a political lens. Cause what you just said is a great example. Like the scientists who actually model disease have been predicting something like this and creating responses for it. Years. And when they were listened to within the political framework, like in South Korea, it's like, Oh, good job. Epidemiology. You killed it. Like mm-hmm. you guys are, are the best. Y'all are lit as, as a organization <laughs> of, of making knowledge and disseminating it. But in the U S you have the epidemiologists going to the highest levels and the highest levels saying, eh, we don't care. And then we'll just see what happens. We'll just roll the yeah. dice on human lives. And so I think that's where like people are going to kind of rate the scientific process based on its political application. And, and just with agriculture, like, I think it's going to be the same way. Like you're going to have a system where there's so many great growers who are trying to do more organic processes um, and really like heal the land, grow more, healthy food for humans and move away from destructive practices. But like they're getting filtered ultimately in terms of big, you know, subsidies from the government and all kinds of things. Um, you know, they're, they're filtering through that political dimension. So I think it's important to keep that in mind 
that even though we want home growers to form networks, like it would also be great to push a little on the big side of things, the, the Fed side, um, the state side, you know, extension and try to push them in the, in the direction you want to see, um, you know, the, the science applied in a way. Um, cause yeah. you know, I think we all, we need both solutions. We need a lot of smaller scale growers. And I think we probably do need to push the big guys. Um, you know, personally, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, from from my vantage point, I don't have I don't have much of a capacity to do that on my end, and so I'm I'm like okay, well my role in the ecosystem is the is the bottom up because it might it's against my personality to want to do that, but it's also just practically I I don't think I have as much push there as I do on this side. So hopefully I can provide like a groundswell that the people who are trying to do that can say look what's happening as like a proof positive and yeah I mean I agree it's it's a both it's not an and or. Well, everybody, uh, check out Epic Gardening. Uh, check out Kevin's book. Thanks, as always, Melissa Metric and NYU Urban Farm Lab. And yeah, thanks uh, to our amazing guest, uh, Kevin Espiritu. And yeah, we, we will be back in touch. Um, stay safe and, and happy growing. Thanks to our awesome guest, Kevin Espiritu. And thanks to Nick Burton at Bootstrap Farmer Radio Network for putting us in touch. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Warner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.